chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question to ask, by the way. And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it, how does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, here's the story. A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, that is the lawyer, and he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. So for the next few weeks, I'll be preaching from the Gospel of Luke, of the parables that Jesus told. And, you know, for many of you, particularly if you grew up in church, whether or not you know the exact language of each of these parables, whether or not you've studied them recently, you probably have a general outline of uh, the story, and it may be familiar with you. Now, for others of you, um, you may never have heard this story before. You know, as as a pastor looking at the demographic trends that are happening around us, one of the things that I'm becoming more and more aware of is those things, particularly for me because I grew up in church, those things that I think everybody knows just aren't true anymore. And so it may be that this is the first time you've heard the actual story of the Good Samaritan, and it may even be true that this is the first time you've even heard that phrase. Now, I I think for all of us, whether you're very familiar with the story or whether this is the first time you hear it, that it's important for us to give fresh attention to it. There's dangers on both sides. So familiarity, if you're very familiar with the story, the danger is you can say, all right, all right, know what it has to say. I already know the lesson here, moving on. And that, that, that allows you, I think, to be very susceptible to missing the point of what Scripture is teaching. And of course, if you've never heard it before, 
we need to give fresh attention that we might hear what the Word of God is saying today. The context of the story comes out of a question from what Luke calls a lawyer. But I want, when you hear that word lawyer, I want you to hear the word theologian, Bible student, something like that. Uh, the, 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 the lawyer in this context is not a lawyer in the sense that we might think about as in the secular legal system. What Luke means by this is someone who has spent their life studying and would consider themselves an expert on the law of God. And what this lawyer wants to do is enter into a theological debate with Jesus. I don't think from the beginning this lawyer is really interested in, in truth. I don't think he even believes that Jesus has anything to tell him. I think he is either interested in stumping Jesus or at the very least just having a, a theological debate, a, an interesting question to sort of chew over, but, but no intention of coming to any resolution at the end. Now, Luke does say that the lawyer wanted to put him to the test, and that may indicate that what motivated him was not necessarily just the enjoyment of a, uh, a conversation and a debate. It very well may mean that he intended to, to trip Jesus up, but at best, he simply wanted an academic debate, and at worst, he wanted to prove that Jesus was not what he said he was. One commentator that I was reading this week as I was preparing had this statement. I thought it was so good. He said of the, of the question that the lawyer asked Jesus, he said, it was a good question. It was just asked with bad motives. That's why I say the question is good. What must I do to inherit the kingdom, the eternal life? That is a question, dear friends, that every single one of us must be asking. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Under that question is how can I be right with God? How am I welcomed into the presence of God for all of eternity? What justifies me? What makes me right before the living and perfect God? It is a good question to ask. Now, when he asks the question, everything seems to be going either as he expected or good in the sense from the lawyer's point of view. The lawyer asks him uh, how Jesus teaches one can inherit the, the, uh, the eternal life, and Jesus responds by asking the lawyer a question that he knew the lawyer would know the answer to. He asked the, the lawyer, he said, what does the law say? And how do you read it? And the lawyer repeats what every Jew would have known by heart. It would have been a part of a prayer they would have prayed every day. It comes from, Deuteron from Leviticus 19 and De Deuteronomy 6. In Leviticus 19, it says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your might. I mean, those would have been words that any Jew would have been able to repeat in their sleep, would have been able to spit off word for word without thinking anything about it. And so Jesus asked the question, what does the law say? How do you read it? And the lawyer spits it back. I mean, this is as basic elementary stuff for him as um, and learning your ABCs in elementary school. This is easy. And he, he gives it right back to Jesus. And at that point, the exchange is going, I think, probably as the lawyer expected. Those familiar debate lines, the back and two, what does the law say? But things are about to take a pretty dramatic change. When, he, when the lawyer gives the, the law back, Jesus' response to this is a pretty simple response. He says, okay, obey that. Do this and you will live. 
Now, at this point, everything begins to to change pretty dramatically. I'm not real sure how much the lawyer necessarily understood what was going down, but but based on uh, the exchange that happens next, I think he's getting a clue. And here's what you need to understand. It is true that if you are able today to keep the law perfectly, the law of God perfectly, and you have been able to keep the law perfectly from the very first moment of your conception, and you've never broken any law of God, and you have perfectly loved the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your body, and you've loved your neighbor as yourself, and you've never, ever, 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 ever once broken the law of God, then you, by definition, are perfect. You do not need the redemption of Jesus, and you have eternal life because you'll be welcomed into the holiness of God because you indeed are holy. But there's a problem here, isn't there? Because I don't know anybody that's kept any of the commandments of God perfectly. No one has loved the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, their strength, their mind perfectly. No one uh, has been able to do this. And no one has loved their neighbor perfectly as themselves. Can I get an amen to that? That wasn't a very enthusiastic amen, but I'll take it. So I think possibly sensing that he was losing the argument because the the answer is pretty clear. You know the law. Go keep the law and you have eternal life. The lawyer understood that already he's condemned because he hasn't kept the law perfectly. And I think because he might be sensing that he's losing the argument, he wanted to move the conversation in in a direction of academic debate. That's what we love to do. If you can't win, let's just get down to the finer points that don't matter. And so he says, all right, forget all that. Let's define terms. Who's my neighbor? Now, there's a long history here. We'll get to this later in the sermon, but uh, there was a long history of defining who was and who was not your neighbor. And it's to this question that Jesus responds with this story about the Good Samaritan. Now, underpinning all of this are some questions. The questions are, are you justified by your own actions Or are you justified by the mercy of God in Christ on the cross? Are you concerned with how much you must do to be right with God? Or are you overwhelmed by the limitless mercy expressed through the cross of Christ? In this exchange, in the story of the Good Samaritan, I want us to see this morning that the first great commandment to love the Lord your God. That is the foundation. That's where we begin. That's the expectation of God where he wants us to be. So we're going to start with what is this great command. And then secondly, I want us to come to this understanding of the great deception. I believe all of us live here at some point in our, in our lives. We live in the great deception, meaning we find ways to make ourselves feel like we're justified even when we're not. And then I want to come to a great awakening. I I hope this lawyer came to a great awakening. I believe the disciples did as they were watching this exchange, coming to recognize that our hope is not in our justification. Our hope is only in the mercy of God. But let's begin with the great command, because that's what begins the story. That's the genesis of the the great story, so uh, the great Good Samaritan story. So the lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is the law? The lawyer rightly repeats the, the law, right, word for word. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and and, and body, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, very, very good. Go do it and you shall live. Two things here. 
Foundational to our righteousness before the Lord requires two things. Number one, it requires whole devotion. Whole devotion. The arrogance of our sinful hearts is believing that what defines truth, holiness, and righteousness is of our own creation and our own determination. Presently, in so many areas, our world is openly, unabashedly rejecting God's truth, even the created order truth, and declaring that what is true is what man declares as true in, in any particular moment, which means what, what our world today is saying, this is true today, and they may say tomorrow something else is true that completely rejects today's truth, but that makes sense in the mind of man because from, from the moment of the fall, we've been doing this. We've been rejecting the holiness of God and trying to define righteousness and holiness by our own standards and by our own mind. This is not unique to our generation. This arrogance has been the character of man since Adam and Eve walked right out of the garden. God's law causes people to love him with everything. I mean, this is foundational. I mean, this is basic. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your might. Before you can obey the specific ordinances and laws of God, you must be wholly devoted to your love of the Lord. That's the point here. Before you can keep the particular commandments, you've got to get your heart right, your soul right, your mind right, your body right. Before you can honor the Lord with your service, you must be wholly devoted to the love of the Lord. Before you can please the Lord in your worship, you must be wholly devoted to the Lord. Wholly devoted in all things that make you, you. Your heart's desire, does your heart's desire wholly and completely love the Lord? Does your heart's devotion wholly and completely love the Lord? Does your in, in intellectual ability and in the, in the contents of what consumes your mind wholly and completely love the Lord? Does your physical effort, everything you do, every a bit of your strength and your effort and your striving, is it devoted to wholly loving the Lord? This is the foundational demand of God. Love the Lord with everything you have. Be wholly devoted to the Lord. And holy devotion connects to whole obedience. So the law was connected. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and, and, and body, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here is the sticky part for me. I think most of us, even falsely, might convince ourselves that we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. But when it gets down to loving our neighbor, that's where we can't fool ourselves much. Devotion to the Lord is more than just saying the right things. Being wholly devoted to the Lord will produce a life that is wholly obedient to the commands of God. And the, command, the great command to declare that we are both to love the Lord with all of our hearts and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. In one sense, I think this is more the more difficult commandment. And this is why. God is perfect. He is unblemished. And he is completely holy, which means God is completely lovely. There is no diminishment. There is no stain. There is no disappointment in the Lord. So when you behold the glory of God, the right response is to love the Lord your God with everything you have. 
And here's something else about God. Because he is perfect in everything, in every way, loving the Lord your God, you will never be disappointed in God. He's always right. He's always good. From eternity past to eternity future, God will never, ever, ever disappoint you. So love the Lord your God with all of you have, and you will never, ever come to a point where you go, that didn't work out the way I wanted it to. But that's not true with man, is it? It's not true with our neighbors. Our neighbors are flawed. You and I are flawed. We'll disappoint you before the, the hour is out. To love your neighbor as yourself means that there are going to be times when you love somebody who doesn't reciprocate. It means that you're going to love folks that, that hate you. It's going to mean that you do things and kind things and service for things who aren't appreciative. It means that you're going to be disappointed. And you're also going to love folks that oftentimes are acting and behaving in a way that's not lovely. But in the law of God, these two commandments are not independent. They are connected to one another. Righteousness requires not only a right relationship with, um, with and before God, but it also means that we must have a right relationship with the creation of God. It is no coincidence that the lawyer did not debate the first part of the commandment. There's no debate there. But when it came to loving his neighbor, that's where he wanted to have the debate. Being right before God is not according to how man defines righteousness, but how God defines righteousness. Righteousness comes only by God's standards, not man's. So the foundation is be wholly devoted before the Lord and wholly obedient to his commands. Now, I just want to say before we go any further, if we were honest at this point, if we were truly honest with where we stand before God, we'd have to say we already fail on point one. We're not wholly devoted to the Lord. And we're miserably failures at point two. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. So in this debate, what we should be saying is, oh, I already am out on the question of eternal life. But the lawyer wants to debate, and so he wants to define terms. Who's my neighbor? And there's a reason behind that, because there's a long tradition in, in Jewish rabbinical teaching about defining who is and who is not your neighbor because it mattered. Because if they weren't your neighbor, you could ignore them. You didn't have to serve them. You didn't have to love them as yourself. And that's where Jesus teaches the story of the Good Samaritan. And I think that leads us to this idea of a great deception. And I, I want to point your attention to a particular word that I think leads us in this idea. So um, when, when, when we're having this exchange, notice what it says in verse 29. But wishing, and here's the word, to justify himself. Two things under the great deception. The first is we try to, or attempt to find righteousness outside of obedience. I want to be just super clear on this. Righteousness is only found in obedience to the law of God. Somebody say amen. But the great deception of, the, of, of man's heart in our flesh is we try and or we attempt 
to construct or find some justification, some righteousness independent of or outside of the righteousness of God or the obedience of God. So he didn't want to have, he didn't want to deal with this great command of loving the Lord your God and uh, loving your neighbor as yourself. No, he wants to debate. Let's figure out a way I can say I obey those things without actually obeying those things. We are masters at self-justification. The lawyer wanted to take the conversation down this well-worn path of debating the limits of, a, of who a Jew had to consider a, a neighbor. I think this is the first deception we fall into, that we can be righteous outside of obedience. Dear friends, there is no righteousness outside of obedience to the Lord. This academic debate concerning who was a neighbor was a way to justify disobedience. There's something that happens in my family a lot when we're arguing. Somebody will, somebody will begin their sentence with, well, technically. And I always say, if you haven't used the phrase, well, technically, you're already in error. You need to back up. All that is saying is, I know I broke the rules. I'm just trying to explain to you why it doesn't count. So consider the story that Jesus tells. A couple of elements about it. The road between Jericho and Jerusalem was a treacherous road. It was a dangerous road geographically, and it was well known to be a, a place where robbers um, uh, would, would rob folks that were traveling. But it also was a well-traveled road because many of the temple workers lived in Jericho, and so to go back into Jerusalem would have required them to walk this road. It was one of those things you just didn't walk by yourself. So Jesus tells the story that a man was on his, on his own. He's walking alone. So already they, they would have, the hearers would have understood, all right, this was a, a, a treacherous, it was a dangerous uh, attempt to make. And you can imagine in any, in any life, in any place, there are times when you have to do things that maybe are, are a little sketchy, a little, a little dangerous, but maybe duty called or work called or for whatever reason he needed to walk by himself. And then there's some characters in the story. There's an assumption there that the man who was going back in two from, from Jerusalem to Jericho, was, was the, the assumption is that he was Jewish which is important because that means that he wasn't, even by any definition of how they define neighbor, he would have been the neighbor to the priest and the Levite. Then you have the priest and the Levite. And so these are, these are folks that would have been um, working in the temple. Um, think of them as religious workers and certainly those who would have known the law of God. And in all uh, of the, both the, the priest, the Levite, and the, the Samaritan, uh, in the story, Jesus says all three of them saw the man. And then, of course, you got the Samaritan. Samaritan is an interesting character to, to include in the story, and it would have been an utter shock to the Jewish hearers in hearing Jesus tell the story. There's a long history here we don't have time for, but just to sort of summarize it, Samaritans as a group of people were hated by the Jews. There were Samaritans who participated in some theological era, they had participated in some rebellion before the Lord, and, and yet they also claimed to have uh, to, to, to continue some of the religious traditions and worship things. And so Jews absolutely hated them. And by the way, if a Samaritan was beaten and left for dead on the side of the road, any good Jew could have justified, that's not my neighbor, and left them there. Jews hated Samaritans, and so for a Samaritan to care for a Jew man, a Jewish man, um, beaten and left for dead, it was to care for someone who hated him. It was an uncomfortable shock. 
The contrast between the priest and the Levite to the Samaritan exposes the deception the lawyer had been given himself to. And here it is. God does not honor our excuses. Can I say that again so that you hear it clearly? God does not honor our excuses. When you stand before God in judgment, if you start a phrase, see what happened was, you're already going the wrong direction. If you have to tell the Lord, well, technically, you're going down the wrong direction. God will not validate our elaborate academic justifications. God will not confirm our exceptions to his law. Righteousness is defined by God alone, and those who love the Lord obey according to his commands, not our justifications. There is no righteousness outside of obedience, but there is always forgiveness of sin by those who, but there is always forgiveness of sin, but those who believe the lie that their sin does not count do not bow their heads in repentance and therefore stand outside of the forgiveness of God. That's the danger of this deception. You justify yourselves in your excuse and yet you stand condemned by the righteousness of God. Tempting to to, to find righteousness outside of obedience is a deception. And then there's a second one here that we, we justify ourselves by our own standards. Now, we cannot know the heart of the lawyer, but I imagine that, that, that through verse 32, he was ready to give a, 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 a defense. And so um, when you read the story that Jesus is telling, he talks about a certain man goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. He gets robbed. He's left for half for dead. And there's a priest that comes and sees him but passes by on the other side. There's a Levite that sees him and passes by on the other side. And I think if you stop the story right there, the lawyer, he's a skilled debater, would have said, well, here's the reason why those men needed to do that. I believe at the end of verse 32, the lawyer had already formulated in his head his argument and was ready to defend the priest and the Levite. And here is the second deception we fall into. Believing that we can, just, can be justified by our own standards. You see, when we judge ourselves, we always judge ourselves according to a standard we know we can meet and better yet, beat. Listen, my wife's always been more athletically gifted than I am. It's why I will never play her in basketball. Amen? I'll play my five-year-old before, when they were little before I'd play her. I don't want to get beat by my wife. So I don't run with her very often. She can outrun me. I'm going to find somebody that's slower than me. Makes me feel better. Amen? If I'm looking for a standard to judge myself by, I'm not looking for something that's better than me. I'm looking for something that's less than me. Makes me feel better. We do that before the Lord. We try to justify ourselves, not by the standard of God, but by, by some other standard. When we consider our righteousness, our obedience, our faithfulness, we compare ourselves to those we are greater than rather than those who, dem who, who, demonstrated, who demonstrate our shortcomings. At the start of this interaction with Jesus, the lawyer is confident, I believe, that he is righteous before God because he has believed the deception that he has been justified, but he's believed the deception that he's been justified according to his own standards. Listen to me carefully, friends. The only standard that matters and the only standard by which we will be judged by is the standard of the living God and his perfect judgment. 
It doesn't matter who the lawyer defines as his neighbor. The question will be, has he obeyed the command of God to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, and mind? And has he loved his neighbor as himself according to the standard of God? Now, that's a pretty low moment. But I think in this story there is a great awakening, and I want us to see that as well. And so Jesus tells the story, and he tells the story about the Samaritan paying and binding up the man's wounds and ministering to his wounds and taking him to the end and, 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 and caring for him, paying for him, loving and caring for the man who would have hated him. And then he asks the lawyer, he says, all right, out of these three people, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, which one of these was the neighbor to the man who was who was wounded. And the lawyer gets it. He doesn't try to defend the, the priest or the Levite at this moment. He gets it and he says, the one, this is verse 37, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. Two things here. I think what is happening here is that the lawyer is, I hope, having his eyes opened and it's taking away any of the, 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 um, the reliance he has put on his own righteousness and his own ability. And he's awakening to the reality that salvation comes not by us keeping the law perfectly, that salvation comes only through the mercy of God. The question was not how could disobedience be justified. That's the question that never is asked by one who loves the Lord with their whole heart, mind, and soul. The question is not what law applied and what law did not apply. All of the law applies. The question was not who was and who is not our neighbor. Jesus blows that apart. Jesus asked the right question, who showed mercy? The lawyer may have been well had a well-reasoned defense of who was and who was not a neighbor, but to the question of mercy, the answer was not up for debate. Only the Samaritan showed mercy. Now, I say this is a great awakening because it was a moment of understanding and, being, and things being clarified. Remember that the original question was how to inherit eternal life. That's, that's what started this whole exchange. Eternal life will not come by keeping the law perfectly. The reason why I say that is because the Bible says that. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if all is all, which it is, and all have fallen short of the glory of God, it means all of us have fallen short of keeping God's law perfectly. So we cannot say that eternal life will come through keeping the law because all of us are condemned on that point. We must understand that mercy comes only through the, the salvation comes only through the mercy of God. What did God do for us? God loved those who hated him. What is the testimony of the cross? Those who hated him hung him on the cross that he might, uh, that he might save those who hated him and put him there. What is the mercy of God that, 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 that he loved those who rebelled against him, that he paid the price for those who sinned against him by paying it on the cross. Romans 5 says that God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to me carefully. In selfishness, we reject the mercy of God. But in humble awareness of our unworthiness before God, 
We rejoice that God redeems wicked sinners. We sang that hymn this morning, Old Rugged Cross. This week, if I, 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 I've been praying, and, and, and part of my prayer life this week was that the Lord would make beautiful in the eyes of those who are lost in our community the ugliness of the cross. And what makes the cross beautiful is not that it's a place where some people die. What makes it beautiful is that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lamb of God died there for you and for me. And it makes it amazingly beautiful that that is where redemption flows from. Now, one thing here. Salvation comes only through the mercy of God. That's how we love the Lord our God with all our, heart, our hearts, our, our soul, and our mind and everything. That's where that comes from. Not by our effort, but by the mercy of God allowing us to love him with everything we have. And then secondly, to know the mercy of God is to show the mercy of God. How do we love our neighbor as ourselves? I don't think it comes through our effort, through our gritting of our teeth. Because if we do that, we'll start defining who is and who isn't, how much we have to do, how little we have to do, and all the rest. I think when you have known the great mercy of God, you show the great mercy of God. After the lawyer answers Jesus in verse 37, Jesus gives a very simple answer. All right, brother, go and do the same. There's an important order here. The command is not be merciful so that you will know the mercy of God. The command is a recognition that you have known the mercy of God so that therefore you will show the mercy of God. Now there's a lot in this parable that calls us to be merciful to others. And I don't want to take anything away from that. But if all you gather from this is that you must perform some action in order to be right with God, you have missed the point. Obey God's word not to earn or achieve righteousness, but because God has set you free from sin. Serve the Lord not to build credit with God, but because he has redeemed you from death and hell. Care for the sick and needy, not to justify yourselves, but because, you, but because what the Lord has done for you and that you are amazed by his indeed amazing grace. The mercy you show is a reflection of the mercy you have known. I heard it said recently, and I, the, the phrase struck me as true, that without thanksgiving, there is no joy. And what struck me so true about that is we are living in a day where there, there's much debate and demand for rights and privileges, but, but very little discussion of thanksgiving and appreciation. Legalism and self-righteousness does not produce joy because it is built on the work of man and not the gift of God. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. And Paul says in, in Romans 6, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There was a report that came out, I believe, two weeks ago, week or, but recently. The headlines were, were splashy because it said that for the first time in American history, that now less than half of, of our population attends church. 
Now, there's a lot there to talk about, and there's some reasons why those numbers are, 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 are little, the headlines are misleading. But the truth is, and you can see the charts and, and watch the demographics, and those of you who've been around a while, you can bear a personal testimony that there is, there is an undeniable decline, a recession, if you will, in religious fervor in our nation. But I want you to notice something. People never stop believing. They always believe something. And the reason that is is because God has created us to desire to be right with him. And so as our world has grown more secular and that secularization has caused our our country and for that matter around the world to, to move away from a biblical worldview, attending church. You know, the reality is that the, the, the youngest generation now are not rejecting church. This is the saddest part to me. They're not rejecting church. They've never been in church. They're not walking away. They've never been in. Their parents didn't attend. We have a generation now growing up in the United States of America who doesn't know what, when, if you say the word good Samaritan, that won't ring a bell. But here's what you'll notice. Watch and pay attention to what's happening. You would think secular, no longer caring about things of righteousness and, and, uh, and what makes you right and what makes you wrong. But if you'll listen to the public discourse, there is a whole lot of talk about right and wrong, moral and immoral. Now, it's oftentimes confused. It's oftentimes wishy-washy and based on some things that are not foundational, but listen to the moralistic speech. Listen to the fervor of those who are giving their passions to some things that are temporary and fleeting. But at the heart of that, you know what I believe that is? I believe at the heart of that is a deep God-created desire to be justified, to be right. And dear Christians, we can affirm that and we can say yes. It is right to desire to be right. It is good to long to be justified. It is right to ask the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But here's the rub. That's our created nature to desire to be right. But the question might be a right question, but we must get to the right answer. And the Word of God is the right answer. You cannot be right by your own effort. You're already condemned in your sin. You cannot be right by your own standards, and you cannot be justified by your own way. The only way to be made right before a holy God is to receive the salvation that comes only through the mercy of God. Are you justified by your actions today? Or are you justified by the mercy of God today? Are you concerned with how much you must do or have to do to be right? Or are you overwhelmed by the mercy of God to save a wretched sinner like you? Dear friend, all those who have known the limitless, overwhelming fountain of the mercy of God that flowed through the veins of Jesus on the cross will love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul, with all their strength, and with all their mind, and their neighbor as themselves.